0: Hello and welcome to the Tao of Wow, a podcast about the intersection of technology, society, and internet culture with a dash of philosophy and art for good measure. I'm Doug Balshaw.
1: And I'm Laura Hilliger. This podcast season is currently partially unfunded. You can support this podcast and other We Are Open projects and products at opencollective.com/slash we are open.
0: So today we're talking to Aaron Hertenstein, an organizational development advisor, collaborator and cooperative badass, who we've been working with recently on some community stuff for local Drupal. So welcome, Aaron.
2: Hiya. Lovely to be here. Nice to see you both.
0: Excellent. I'm really glad that we managed to get you on on series five. So you have recently left a co-op that you founded, and we'll dig into that in a moment. But... um. In time honor tradition, which I think we can now talk about in season five, we'd like to ask you like, what's your favorite book? Yeah, that's
2: a really good question because it does depend on the day. It's a little bit like your favorite film, isn't it? Um, so the the typical answer I would give is the Count of Monte Cristo. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh,
1: nice. Okay.
2: Um, which long, is just long book. long book, but like if it's your favourite book, what more do you want, right? Um, the other one, which is also a very long book, is um, uh, about a boy. Is, it? is that what It's called Vikram oh, Seth. Nick. Nick no, Nick sorry, no, no Vikram Seth's um, novel, um, which I can't remember. It's a long time since I read it, but it's one of the biggest books ever written. Um, and it's great, right? Because if you love it, it's just a never-ending wonderfulness. Um, but I would say right now the best book is the Collins Complete Guide to British Mushrooms and Toadstools.
1: Oh, are you because are you collecting mushrooms at the moment?
2: I'm, I am endeavouring to collect mushrooms. Yeah.
1: Yeah. My neighbours actually brought us two, I think they're called stone mushrooms in English. Um, and they're the base is like a tree trunk on one of these mushrooms. It's what I'm having for dinner tonight. Nice. Um, it's a it's big in Germany to go mushroom hunting. It's, the, a, it's a whole thing. I, Germans I never
2: are it. some of the best mushroom foragers out there. Yeah. yeah,
1: They're really good at it. Yeah.
2: yeah. And it's, it's sort of, a whole, you know, really embedded into the community and the way of living in a way that it's not in the UK, unfortunately, which is a shame yeah. because it's a wonderful place to pick mushrooms.
1: Yeah, uh, it's also, so, it's quite an interesting hobby, right? Because uh, mushroom picking can be very dangerous. There are a lot of mushrooms that people should not eat.
0: Who was the guy who, there's a film about it, isn't there? Where he went off into the wilderness and two of the pages stuck together and he ended up dying because he had the wrong mushroom. Have you seen this film? No. Into the, into the. Oh, oh is it Into the Wild? Yeah. yeah is that what world. happens in Into the Wild? Okay. He dies, he dies at the end. He's slow, yes, he does. He slow because I read the book, now watched the film. He slowly dies because he realizes that there were two pages stuck together and they find him months later, I think.
1: Um That's the one where he's up. in a bus, right? Somewhere yeah. Yeah, yeah. up up in I feel like it was like Arctic. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, in Northern yeah. Canada. <gasps>
0: So people listening to this, don't go randomly eating and picking mushrooms unless um, you've read the book that Aaron's read. But I feel like we could spend the rest of the podcast, not that we're going to, but the rest of the podcast just digging into this book selection. Um, (laughs) I do follow Amy Guy, who works for, I think, Open Data Collective on Mm Mastodon. And she does a lot of foraging. She's vegan and she does forage for lots of stuff. Um, But I want to talk about the two books. So it's A Suitable Boy, because I was double checked, by Vikram Seth and The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. Yeah. And on my literal thing, which is a bit like Goodreads, um, my little tagline is, I like big books and I cannot lie. Because <laughs> I am like you. I like a big, chunky book. But I'm really interested in like, how did you get into stuff like Alexandre Dumas and Ficum Seth? It is reading like something a family thing or just something that you got into as an escape? Or where does all that come from?
2: Um, So Suitable Boy is easier to answer, I think, in that when I was in my, I think it was probably early 20s, so that's 20 years ago, um, I got really into um, Anglo-Indian fiction, Mm -hmm. and all of them, um, you know, and I I think maybe part of the reason for that is um, I'm a massive cricket fan and cricket player. And so Indian culture has always been quite a big part of um, my life. I've played with a lot of people, you know, from the subcontinent and that kind of thing. So there's always been a, a, quite a big awareness of, of that culture in those areas. Um, and I started reading, I was actually recommended um, the book before A Suitable Boy, the Vikram Seth wrote, which I can't remember what it's called now. It's An Equal Music. I can't remember what it's called, <laughs>
0: um,
2: which was heartbreaking. It was quite, it's quite short. It's very simple. It's just um, about uh, a, a man and a woman who were in love and then lost love and then found each other again um, by um, passing London buses, I think, and they play music, mm-hmm. um, chamber music. So that... That sort of put me onto him, and then I thought, okay, well, this is great. I'm going to read A Suitable Boy, because it's massive. Um, And I was living in Barcelona at the time. I was on my own. And I just spent a month reading that and going to the beach and swimming and reading and swimming and reading (laughs) and eating food, you know? And it was like this. I just dived into this world. And the thing about that book is it's a whole, you know, he creates this incredible family political world that you kind of dive into and it's around the time of partition so there's you know there's a lot of exterior context going on but really it's just like a soap opera of an Indian family you know and it's amazing but it goes into so much of the sort of levels of culture and obviously it's about arranged marriages and and that kind of thing so um that started me on the path down to like reading all the Indian authors um which I did for five or six years and then I moved on to something
0: else. Erin, I've known you for a while, but like I, I didn't know you lived in Barcelona, for example. So, um, and also I think you've lived in Turkey, is that right?
2: Yeah, I studied Turkish uh, for my degree. I'm not sure why to this day, but I did it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I lived in Turkey for quite a long time. So, yeah, Indian fiction, and then obviously read a lot of Turkish fiction. So, I studied literature as well as the language.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, Yeah.
1: And where did you live in Turkey?
2: Where everyone lives in Turkey, unfortunately. Istanbul.
1: (laughs) I did start traveling
2: around, but um, yeah, Istanbul's the place because I was studying there Mm -hmm. um, um, at one of the universities.
1: Yeah. I love Turkey. I've been five, six times. Mm. I've only been to Istanbul twice, um, but I've spent a good bit of time. I miss it. It's time to go back. It's been a couple of years.
2: Yeah, I've got a friend who's just um, just gone out there now and is walking the the Lycean Way on the south coast mm-hmm. and uh, sending pictures. And it's hard, you
0: know. It's i mean, yeah. <laughs> Scotland, a
1: area. yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> the weather's changing. Yeah. Scotland's um, great. It's absolutely um, fantastic. So, um, geographically wise, geographically wise, you're just the other side of Northumberland National Park, but you've, you haven't been there very long. Correct. Yeah, so, one yeah. year coming up to one year. So seamless segue here, um, you were part of a co-op for 10 years, and that's one of the reasons you were in Oxford, I think. But now you've got a, a new business, Shepherd Stone, which has kind of gone with the move and all that kind of stuff. And you're part of other networks and part of other kind of co-op networks and food networks and stuff. So what are you doing now that you've left a co-op? And like, what does it mean to leave a co-op?
2: Yeah, that's a lot in that, isn't it? I mean, I went off (laughs) to um, Greece for a month to figure that out and go walking. So I I didn't come up with an answer, Doug, I'm afraid. Um, (laughs) So um, in the co-op, you know, we were, it's a web development company, you know, design, build, maintain websites, um, but mainly on Drupal um, for the, you know, for the sort of uh, tech for good sector. And... Obviously, like like yourselves, you know, that is mainly project-based and you're just, like, currently across, you know, loads of stuff at the same time. So I've left that, you know, so all of that loads of stuff was in the box, and now I've left and I'm out of the box and I'm just doing loads of stuff. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that two days a week I'm working for the Open Food Network, who are a platform co-op um, that have an online platform for local food producers, but they're also trying to build... A community around that um, to support um, local food producers and sellers um, in a pretty hostile climate.
1: Hmm.
2: Um, and that's a global project. So there's a UK instance, and that's that's where I work, a couple of days a week. Um, and then the rest of my week is a project that we've been working on, um, one day a week for local Gov Drupal. Um, and then one day a week, working with Outlandish, uh, other tech cooperators, operators um, doing organizational development work through our, our sort of arm called Building Out, um, Out, standing for openness, understanding and trust. So it's a real mix. And then I seem to be picking up little bits of freelance organizational development work, um, mm-hmm. mainly around um, sociocracy. And, and well let's
0: talk about that um so both because people hear the words organizational development kind of bandied around and they might have heard and might not have heard they might have heard on this podcast us talk about sociocracy before like what is all that what does it mean for an organization to develop what is sociocracy like what is it that you're you're doing what is this stuff
2: um, I mean, Socioxy really is an operating system for a non-hierarchical way of working say at its simplest. And it has a few fundamental principles that, um, that sort of f- form the basis of that system. One is um, using consent-based decision-making, which I think you use at We Are Open. Um, the other is organizing your work um through circles so that's a sort of structure of of your organization. So each circle is its own autonomous unit. Um, You know, a team that has its has a say in how it functions and is not sort of reliant or incumbent on another another unit. Um, And the third um main principle I would say is is um maybe a more like a mindset or a culture around uh, iterative learning and development. Um, And um, probably, more crucially, a human way of working. So that's bringing the whole self into work and compassionate forms of communication. And I think, I, think, I don't know if we, if we think we've all worked in fairly destructive workplaces probably <laughs> that come across like, you know, the destruction of hierarchy and that kind of stuff. Um, but in some ways, it's a lot cleaner and simpler, isn't it? You know, you're just told what to do and you get on with it and your motivation goes down and you leave. Um, or if you're lucky, you might have a good boss who's great, but at some point, you know, you're, that line, that invisible line shows itself and you duck down again beneath the surface. Um if you're working in a messier way, I think that aspect of how we communicate is kind of fundamental and much more visible because you're trying to work it out together. And you don't just leave it to someone to go, right, okay, I'm going to make a decision.
1: Can we unpack what you mean by iterative learning and development and how that sort of connects to this bringing your whole self to work. Can you unpack that a little bit for our listeners?
2: Um, I think that when you're... I've been thinking about this a little bit over the over the weekend in terms of um, decision-making. So often when we are organizing as a community or in a co-op and we're organizing in a way that doesn't have a, an explicit hierarchical power structure, the way we make decisions... Um, is a can be a real challenge, especially when you're growing and you've got more people. Um, so it might be fine between three. You can be fairly informal about it once you get to eight and you're also running a business and time is precious. Um, so how we make decisions is a challenge for a sort of efficiency point of view, but it's also a challenge from a sort of human connection point of view because it's really easy for people to be overridden and not heard and um, it brings in all of the feelings that we have around fear and anxiety and that kind of stuff so for me making decisions by consent and, and adopting an iterative mindset means that we're not looking for perfection and we're not looking for the best thing we're looking for what's good enough and safe enough to try, to test, and to, mm. I would say, quite a lot of the decisions we make in business, especially if it's not building something, we'll probably know a lot more once we've done it for a period of done time. Done a bit
0: more of it, yeah. Yeah, It's interesting because, yeah, we absolutely all have lived in and worked in destructive environments and, and hierarchy and stuff. And, and when you said that, it made me remember how much time is expended within the hierarchical organisations I've worked in, making things which look extremely shiny but have nothing at their core, and just the the hopes that it'll be different this time, and just how jaded you get after 10 or 20 years of realising that it's, it's not going to get better next time because there's nothing, it's a confection, there's nothing actually in the centre of it. It's just a slide deck with some pretty very optimistic numbers and graphics on it. And there's, as you say, there hasn't been any testing to see whether this is the right direction to go in. It's just a hope. And sometimes a lot of things are, are staked on it. Um, and then there's just the the disappointment at the end. Um, what I've liked about the work that we've done together, Local group Drupal and, and other things, is just that continual testing. It could be user research. It could be let's just do this and see if it's good enough. And good enough is such a revolutionary thing to say because there's not many organizations where it would actually be safe to say, well, this is good enough for now. Because good enough for now feels like settling. Hmm. Whereas actually it's a very, it's a forward looking, forward motion, kind of let's do something today, right now, rather than let's, let's try to make something perfect. This huge confection for the future, which ends up, popping like a balloon.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And good enough, for, some people do take that to be a compromise, and I would strongly resist that urge, and that fudge. Um, and so in the consent process, it's absolutely legitimate to raise a critical concern and say, this isn't good enough. This is too weak. Actually, why are we talking about this if we're not going to, if the change we're trying to make is so small, you know, and we've spent an hour talking about it.
1: Um, we the- actually had an example from this morning. We had a we have our weekly meetings on Mondays. We're recording this on a Monday, dear listener. Um, and we had a proposal on the table that somebody had written into into the meeting, like either during the meeting or right before the meeting. Um, and it wasn't a complicated decision per se um but one you know it did not get consent um it like reading the proposal I personally thought I was like oh this is easy but it didn't get consent and the reason that it didn't get consent is because somebody just needed a little bit of time to think about it like wanted to act not make a rash decision but rather have a minute to just sort of think around what what that meant Um, And it was it was quite a simple thing. And I, I was actually really pleased that this person was like, I haven't had time to think about that, because it's happened to us in the past, where, you know, I think something is quite easy to decide on. And somebody else says, yeah, but there could be implications, and I just need a minute. And I thought that it was like just a really good reminder that, you know, what we think of as easy decision-making points might require a little bit of like learning from somebody else and giving them that time is part of what it means to work in an organization that's, you know, consent-based because, yeah, I thought that was
2: That's really interesting, Laura, because um, that, like that, to me, your response, or I don't know what, what the other responses were in the room and how the other humans were feeling, but if that was the the general feeling of like, oh, that's good. Okay, let's wait. And, that, and, it, and that's, it's good to wait um, and allow someone to sort of come to their own place with it. Um, that shows a sort of level of emotional maturity in the group that we're often not – that's not actually that common, I don't think. It's quite no, easy think. to be frustrated or to want to force through something Um, and not to sort of acknowledge that this is okay. Actually, this is building a level of understanding in the group. And actually, that kind of thing builds trust.
0: And the the thing which I always forget is the context. It's easy to take for granted the context that you've got. So, for example, um, in our co-op, Laura and I work together on pretty much all our projects. And I forget that not every every other member of the co-op and our collaborators have the context i feel like i don't i don't rationalize it like this but subconsciously i'm like oh well everyone knows about it because law knows about it and i know about it mm-hmm. and then you kind of spring things on people and then <laughs> and then they're like i haven't got the context for this i need a bit more time and um yeah you're right it's, it is emotional discussion some of it is emotional uh, emo- emotionally mature and some of it is just getting to know each other over a long period of time yeah but you don't get to know each other unless you bring your full self to work, which is yeah. why I'm always interested in that part of of sociocracy. Um, I was just interested, and feel free to like move on to the next thing, but just when you're part of an organization for 10 years, especially one that you co-founded, how you untangle yourself from that, especially when you have brought yourself to work for 10 years, and eventually you have to say, actually, I'm going to step out. And it might not be for, I don't know, in your situation, it might not be forever, but actually, I just need some time. Like we have a, a dormant member policy, but you've gone beyond that. You've completely left, I think.
2: Yeah, I have. Although I, I would say that at Agile Collective, there there has been an, a sort of dormant member policy. We have, That's not the words that were used. Mm. Um, but we, that came through career breaks, and that was quite a big thing for, for quite a few of us. Um, I was the first one. who went off to India for three months in 2016. Um, and then someone else went um, traveling around the world. And then somebody else went sailing for six months into the med. Um, and I would say that it was unpaid, but that, that having that ability to do it you know, to go off and do that kind of stuff was is fundamental to kind of retainment, using a horrible word. Mm-hmm. Um, but for people sticking around, I mean, it's ironic me saying it because I'm I haven't stuck around. But um, w- your question, Doug, was around like the you know being a being a founder member and being around for ten years and how
0: that. Yeah, well, I just I, because there might be lots of people listening. Most people listening, I'm guessing to this will have a have a job and move between jobs and my experience of that is you move jobs for lots of different reasons you move jobs because you have a promotion you move jobs because you rage quit an organization (laughs) you move jobs because i don't know you move house or you need to you want to move into a different sector or whatever and like just moving into a different part of your life and disentangling yourself from an organisation when there isn't the, I'm going to get a different job, must be quite a, for, I'm, I'm guessing for some people listening, including me, must be quite a, a weird and somewhat fraught thing to do. I'm projecting here massively, but hmm. maybe you found it really easy. No, I, I absolutely <laughs> didn't. Go for it, Laura.
1: No, I was. I. I mean, I think that the thing that I find interesting. And maybe this is a little bit what Doug is trying to ask is, is how did you manage to untangle the pieces of your identity that were so connected um, to the co-op that you founded and worked at for 10 years? How Mm -hmm. did you, you know, how did you manage to like take a a step forward and how did you get through that? What did you do? Do you have any advice for people that are maybe trying to untangle? I think.
2: Yeah, I mean I don't I don't know if I've got advice, but I mean my you know, my experience of of um it was actually quite a big shift. Um I'd always found work pretty fun, pretty easy. Um before, like I was a the English language teacher for on and off for sort of ten years before that and you know, roaming around a bit and that kind of thing. Um and my experience of that is like quite a lot of autonomy, which was great. Um, because I was not a big fan of bosses. That was sort of I don't know why, but ingrained from a very early age. Um, and then coming into a co-op and founding this thing together and starting this thing, the the, um, the emotional stakes got way higher. And that was something I really struggled with, actually, for a while. That untangling of, of like my personal values, identity, um, self-esteem from you know, the sort of rational assessment of what the business needs. Um, and I think you can also legitimately do irrational assessment of what a business needs. Um, but that was really, I, th- I found that really difficult. And I, I actually, sociopsy really helped. It helped in two ways. One, we had a way of making decisions that was clear. Um, and it really, I love the steps and how they simplify um, what's going on in your brain, you know, let's start by understanding what's being proposed how do i feel about that and then do i have any critical concerns um and most often before we would you'd have conversations and all of those three things would be mixed up at once it would be incredibly difficult to um, navigate that um if it was anything vaguely complex or even if you say laura is like the simplest thing you know Turns out to not be, because there's like six different perspectives going on.
0: Mm.
2: So on the one hand, that really helped. And on the other, the decentralizing of our work and just allowing people to just sort of take ownership of that bit, for me, was really helpful. As someone that um, had joined and was very much central to the operational aspects of the co-op, you know, from business development and hiring and figuring out pay and, you know, all of this sort of all of these in, intractable, difficult discussions and, and figuring out stuff and often like figuring it out for yourself. What I loved about sociocracy was like, I can just go to this shelf and pick out a few things and, you know, we can adapt it to what we need, but we don't have to invent the whole bloody thing. Mm. Um, but leaving um you know, I, I think I got to a point where I was not... I, I found very often, actually, it was my role. I wasn't clear what my role was as a project manager. And I was finding that role was changing quite a lot because of how we were running projects and I think how the tech was changing. Um, and it became a lot more of a sort of... almost in a project administrator. And that became unsatisfying. And I think when you're at a place where this isn't satisfying you then need to kind of ask questions of like, okay, well, is, it, is it the work? Is it the environment? Is it my role? And I did a load of that. I did like loads of processes to try and figure it out. And in the end, I was like, I'm not happy. So I need to go and try something new. So you new. decided
0: to change everything at the same time by moving house, yeah, moving job and having a baby all at the same time. So fantastic. Yeah, which isn't great from a
2: you know uh, from a data point of view. I've got no idea what's worked and what's not. It's
0: you need to rerun the experiment. Aaron, come on. I've not done it very well. Yeah, yeah. I want to dig back into something which you talked about because I know you haven't mentioned this yet. But I've um, when I was doing some work with you at Outlandish, um, the work around Font, which is based on nonviolent communication, had a massive impact on me, and not just professionally but personally as well. Um, and I feel like you've been potentially weaving that into some of the stuff with sociocracy and then maybe they go hand in glove. Um, and I think we've touched on, Laura, have we touched on nonviolent communication on this podcast before? We must've done.
1: I, Yeah, we're in the fifth series. So I'm sure that we've, <laughs> that we've used it at some point, um, but, but just to actually, I'm, I don't think that our listeners maybe know what font is. Um, yeah.
0: So I just want to dig into that actually. Like um, what is font? Uh, what is nonviolent communication? And just because I think everyone thinks that they're an, maybe an unviolent communication communicator. Like I'm not going around the place saying I'm going to punch people in the face. Like what's, what's the problem here? Like why do we need nonviolent communication and, and fond and stuff? Cause I found that as useful, if not more useful than the sociocracy stuff. Um, I presume we're allowed to swear on this podcast.
1: Fuck no. <laughs>
2: uh, the reason I asked is, is that I remember going on a nonviolent communication workshop um, probably a year or two into starting at Agile. And I invited a colleague on it who is well known to you, is begins with F. And I said, Do you want to come on this uh, nonviolent communication workshop with me? And he said, Fuck, Fuck off. Why would I want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I very quickly realized that, you know, even with the best intentions, you know, things can come across loaded. Um, so nonviolent communication is, uh, I'm not, I'm, I am not i i do not think I'm the best person to, to explain it really, but I mean, it's, it's a way of, um, speaking and listening, um, that, um, acknowledges the, the feelings and needs of the other person as much as yourself. Um, and so FONT is, stands for feelings, observations, needs, thoughts. And that is, I'd say, more like a, a verbal protocol, a way of like structuring your, um, your expression um, that clarifies what is going on in your head and your body. Um, so being able to say, I'm feeling angry, and then to say, you know, I need um, support. And then to say the thoughts that are going on in your head and actually knowing that those are different, that the thoughts that are going on in your head are different from the feelings that you're having. And those feelings are usually sensations in the, bodies, in the body. Um, and then finally, observation, which is like the factual data that we can see and hear. Um, going on so if you imagine a video camera in the corner of a room what would that video camera pick up and that is all we can say really we can say you know the door closed we probably wouldn't say you slammed the door which would be a bit more of a judgment for example
0: mm-hmm.
2: Um, mm-hmm. you left the room and you closed the door um so th- and it it fits in with sociocy because i think um when you get into um, consent-based decision-making, really what you're talking about is requests, and that's part of nonviolent communication is to be able to express your needs and make a request of the group. And consent really is you know, that within a, a group context maybe rather than one-to-one.
0: Hmm. And I remember Abby at Outlandish when she was doing some of this training saying that if she's going into a... A tricky meeting or something like that she'll she'll do it proactively hmm. like um so that she can get into because you have lots of thoughts going around and as you say like feelings and stuff but figuring out what it is that you need like what it is that you want out of it um that particular font thing can be quite useful for getting out of your spiraling oh my goodness this person hates me whatever into what it is that you need From the other person, the request that you're making of them, um, which I found revolutionary, both, Mm. as I say, in professional life, but also in my personal life with my wife and whatever. And in fact, my wife did that font uh, course as well, which was quite interesting because at one point she said, don't you start using that nonviolent communication stuff on me?
2: That's a, that's a very familiar story from from an interaction with my partner in the kitchen <laughs> absolutely
0: almost like it's unfair for you to use those tools against me but actually what you're trying to do is get to the bottom of stuff it's almost it's not a superpower but you know it's like a it's a mechanism you can use. And sometimes, um, you know, I'm not actually talking about my marriage in this particular point. It just happens to be following on from what i was been saying. Sometimes the other person just wants to keep arguing. And when you start doing the nonviolent communication stuff in the fund, what I find really interesting is that the other person who just wants to keep on arguing, you're basically downing tools and saying, hey, let's have a mature discussion about this. Or the other person is doing it to you because I'm often the person who just wants to keep on arguing. And it becomes, it becomes like you can't fight if both people don't want to fight. So it's, it's. I find it fascinating. And for anyone who hasn't done any of this work before, um, the workshops that I'll do, which Aaron helps with, uh, which we'll put in the sh- in the show notes. You should definitely check it out. It's wonderful, wonderful stuff.
1: Yeah, we actually did it. Um, the we did it, uh the I think it was called um com- conflict reframing. The workshop at Re,
2: Reframing conflicts, which unfortunately, mm-hmm. I very often mispronounce as reflaming conflicts, which oh, yeah. is uh, <laughs> the exact <laughs> opposite of what you're trying to do.
1: Yeah, um, we, um, we actually did it as as a co-op. Um, and I, like Doug, also found it revolutionary. And Doug and I, you know, we're pretty friendly on the podcast, but sometimes we really butt heads because um, we've known each other for a long... I mean, we outright fight like brother and sister sometimes. Um, and a couple of times we actually remember <laughs> font. And then, you know, we say, hold on, wait a second, we need to get through this. Let's just shut up for a minute, figure out what's going on in in our heads, figure out, you know, I mean, we've literally turned off video, like the video in Zoom, spent five quiet minutes thinking about, you know, what am I actually feeling here? How can we get through that and use that to push forward? Um, and it's, it's been really great. Yes, for,
2: interesting. For I,
1: collaboration too, you
2: know. Yeah, I was going to describe your relationship as combustible.
1: Um, <laughs>
2: uh, um, but uh-huh. I, the other question I would have was like um, how, since doing that, that workshop, and it's obviously like you've both liked it and that work and you kind of, it, it sort of, I think it tunes in naturally to where you are. And I wondered whether that's the same for the group or whether it's sort of become a, you know, a, a dominant mode within We Are Open, or it's more personal, that sort of, you know, you use it, Laura, for example, or whether it's, you know, it has it become cultured in that way? Uh,
1: that's actually a really interesting question. So I um, I don't think that it's become cultured in the way that, like in the workshop, um, I remember that part of the... Curriculum, the learning, the topics was really about um, the idea that we're sort of we're programmed to understand conflict as negative. But conflict doesn't have to be negative, it can be really positive. Um, and that, you know, the, the the font being a mechanism to deal with negative conflict um, isn't the only way to use it. And that you could actually use font to deal with positive conflict too, or project conflict or whatever. Um, And I don't I don't think that we've embedded it into the culture as much as maybe we could, um, because I certainly use it as a way to kind of escape negative conflict. Like I realize that there's conflict Mm. in the room. I realize that I'm feeling something that is maybe not particularly positive or optimistic or whatever. And I use it as a way to like as a way mainly to help the people around me understand what I'm what I'm experiencing and what's kind of rubbing me the wrong way. And I feel like if it was integrated, like if it was more integrated, that maybe we would, we would use it as a way to, I don't know, review, do a debrief, for example, after a client meeting or something and be like, hey, yeah. let's, let's talk about our, you know, what did we observe? What did we feel? Like, let's, hmm. you know, like that we could use it more proactively, I guess.
0: Hmm. I think part of that, and I'd agree with what Laura said, is that the other two members of our co op are a lot more emotionally i don't i I don't want to use the word stable but you know what i mean like they're much more like less up and down than laura and i are i would say and Mm. so maybe it's definitely had a positive effect but like it's maybe different for them because they don't express themselves as vociferously maybe as laura and i do um and so maybe, yeah, it, it's going to be different for different people. But it's a really interesting question that we need to go back and have a think about, about whether the impact has been personal or kind of group. And it's probably more on the personal side, yeah.
2: But I would I'd say that like my experience of it as well is that um, you'll find in a, in a team, like thinking of agile Collective, that some people just don't want to go there. You know, they're just like may they can see the rational the, the benefits rationally they can kind of understand it, but it's not something they feel comfortable using. you um,
1: have to be quite vulnerable, right yeah to mm. you know to really say i'm I'm feeling this because of these thoughts, and this is what I've observed, but this is how I... like it it is quite a vul- vulnerable way to sort of sort through what's going on in the mind,
0: mm.
1: and especially you know especially if. Um, if you are a bit combustible, (laughs) uh, like Doug and I can be, um, yeah, that's, I, I honestly, I can't imagine what it's like for, for people who have seen Doug and I like in conflict, what that feels like. Like, I know Aaron that you've seen. I know what it feels like
0: from the inside. Yeah. (laughs) I know what it
1: feels like from the inside too. (laughs) It's like, ah, I hate it. But then, you know.
0: Dear listener, like it's once every, well, maybe three times a year. It's not like yeah, no, all the time.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. Sure. But the, yes. I, I, just to build on what you're saying, Laura, I'd say, um, yes, it's uncomfortable mm-hmm. and not everyone feels uncomfortable. And we're taught that it's not the way to be at work. And so depending on how much that programming is there and depending on how much your personality is like aligned to this, you know, different way of, communicating i think that has a massive effect on how people you know respond to it
1: it's i mean it's really interesting that you say this is not how we uh, how to we're programmed you know to not be like that at work and the thing is is like with people that i really respect and trust they might see that uh, like both of you have seen uh conflict in you know in instances um but there are like plenty of like, I do put on the the mask sometimes, you know, like I I am capable of the mask and I prefer to work in an environment where I don't have to keep the mask up where I can actually feel what I'm feeling, express it, catch myself, deal with it, whatever. Um, And I, I mean, that's what bringing your whole self to work is right.
0: Yeah. And I've got something on my wall, which reminds me, Um, and it was something that Laura shared with me from someone who used to work at Greenpeace with her and it's about professionalism and like you don't need to be professional because I feel like especially in the UK being professional somehow is elided with keeping a stiff upper lip and like you know as you say Laura wearing the mask and not bringing yourself to so it is quite a revolutionary thing to do to say I'm bringing all of me into my work place
2: and uh... (laughs) A a, a slight anecdote, an amusing anecdote on this is that I remember fairly recently doing a a couple of workshops um, with Abby, and um, we do a check-in at the beginning, so we just go around the group and say, how are you doing? How are you feeling today? And the first workshop I checked in and said, I'm feeling all right. I'm a bit hungover, Um, had a few drinks that night, so I'm just feeling a little bit squiffy. Second workshop. Squiffy? Yeah, that's an English phrase. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. Not quite. No nice. worries.
1: Okay. Continue. Um
2: foggy, <laughs> foggy headed. Um yeah. second workshop. Apparently I said the same thing. Um <laughs> and so after the workshop after the second one, that you know, the person I was working with sort of wrote and said, Look, I've got to say this. I feel a little bit uncomfortable, but you know, that like some people in the group reacted that and they remembered that you checked in being hung over the first time and the second time. And we kind of, that didn't, that didn't feel very professional in terms of like offering us a service and delivering a service to us, um, which I thought was really interesting. One, because I'd hardly drunk for 18 months because we were trying for a baby. And two, um, I don't know if that actually had an impact on what I was delivering at all. And that's not what they said either. It was the perception, perception. of professionalism. Um, and that just sort of—it was really interesting. It's was like, okay, and I started questioning whether I would do that again. You know, whether I'd say say the same thing and be honest. And I was like, do you know what? I would, because I, I don't see that that has an impact necessarily on, you know, what I'm doing. I and think I've I'm told both of you like. this
0: before, but I remember when I worked for Moodle, um, hired Outlandish to do a design sprint. Very first day, uh, introduced sociocracy. And Kaylee at Outlandish, um, she said that she'd argued with her, her mother and that she was potentially waiting for a phone call from her mother and she was feeling quite emotionally upset about it or whatever. And I saw the CEO of Moodle and other people in the group, and even me a little bit, kind of like, first of all, is that relevant to what we're doing today? Like cold-hearted, rational kind of thing. But also, like, is that unprofessional? And then realizing, like, oh, that totally changes the dynamic of what it's okay to share in this group. And as Laura said before, now I can let the mask slip a little bit. I don't have to, I can't take it off completely because I don't know everyone completely yet. But it's just these little chinks that enable you to not have to check yourself all the time, but just say what you think, um, hopefully in a non-violent way.
2: Yeah, and we're working on Zoom, right, normally. And so you see this little box That's what we see of people now, particularly in in the virtual space. Um, But I've got no idea if Doug's wearing trousers (laughs)
0: right now. I'm holding a hot water bottle. There we go. You didn't didn't know know that. that. No, I didn't know that, but good choice. There we go. Um, Talked about online, offline things. Um, Just to finish off, because I think we're pretty much at our time. Have you noticed in terms of this kind of work you're doing, in terms of bringing your full self to work, nonviolent communication, consent-based decision-making. Um, is it easier online, easier offline, just different? Does it depend on the organization? Like, what have you found?
2: Do you mean delivering the workshop, delivering the work, or um, the impact people working of and engaging like, with each other?
0: Yeah, so, like, right now, I could be um, pretending to be listening to you but actually checking my emails, where I can't do that offline. But also, maybe it's easier to engage with people and be realer, in inverted commas, or more straightforward, because you're not going to come and punch me in the face because you're several hundred miles away or whatever.
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot in that, isn't there? Um, because of, you know our normal working environment now is Slack, 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 slack Zoom. Slack, 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 Zoom. and um, yep. And so there's a lot of stuff in the slack, 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 slack bit that we could talk about. But if we're talking about like how we interact you know, online together directly um, and synchronously, I think it's really interesting because I would say that um, a lot of these practices really help because you are already constrained by the technology that working in rounds is really useful. And is a lot is sort of a lot easier and in some ways more natural to do synchronously on Zoom than it is um, sitting in a circle together or you know sitting across a, a, a table. Um, I guess often... because
0: it, I'm doing it now, I'm interrupting you, but that's partly because I can't. I can see your bodily cues, but also I have a tendency to want to look into the webcam when I talk so that people feel like I'm looking at them. Yeah, um, but in in person. Yeah. You can see each other's cues, like intention to speak, whatever, but sometimes you can't get your a word in edgeways, so I guess the rounds, yeah, whether online or offline, just give a, everyone a chance to speak, and yeah.
2: um, that was my phone going because I was unprofessional, and I hadn't muted it um shocking yeah yeah absolutely and and um the flip the flip side obviously is like you missed the little. random interactions right when you're walking down to the meeting room with your colleague or whatever yeah and um you have a little chat about whatever it is that i miss all of that massively um and i think that's why i find the check-ins really important and in in ofn the open food network like we use the check-ins to sure share how we are but also and i think we do as well when we've been working together we bring in a little anecdote about what's been going on with us you know Hmm. someone's just picked four kilos of mushrooms Oh, wow. You know, then you start talking about and you sort of bring in and you do have to formalize some of those like uh, informal random interactions that you have. Um, but I think they're vital. Otherwise, when you get into the slack bit and you haven't bonded, the, you know, the difficulty and miscommunication that can happen, you know, in a text format is massive. And I think if that's not underpinned with, real connection and sort of understanding of like Doug is a human. It's a bad example. Sorry. Laura is a human. Um, Then it's, it can escalate incredibly quickly just from like one word that
0: someone's misinterpreted. I feel like that's going to be the title of my next blog post. Or if you, if you get it in there fast enough, formalizing the informal, because that is fascinating. The way that you have to, schedule stuff which was usually spontaneous hmm. but do it in a way that doesn't feel forced. Like hmm. that is that is the the thing to do. I feel like we've run out of time, although I could talk to you as ever forever, Erin. We'll have to go on a walk sometime. Um, any last things that you haven't had a chance to say that you'd like to make sure that people listening we can always get you back on, I guess, if you're if you're willing, but anything else that you haven't had a chance to say that you'd like to clarify clarify or or adds to what you've said so far?
2: Only that if there's anyone out there who's thinking of setting up a local food hub and is wondering how to do that, the Open Food Network is the place to go.
0: Nice. Cool. So if people want to be like, hey, I want to have a chat with Aaron by myself, or I'd like to like follow him like a bit of an online stalker, um, where should they go? Where should they seek you out?
2: I'm very passive on social media, unlike, unlike some. Um, so I am on Twitter. I am on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me by searching my name. There's only one of me. Um, And the other option is you can send me an email at aaron at shepherdstone.works.
0: See what I did there. Cool, funky new TLD. Nice one. Well, Aaron, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast episode. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon.
2: It's been fab. It has absolutely flown by.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Bye-bye.